From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. As humans, we are not individuals, but rather intertwined and interdependent on social structures, processes, and objects. Our existence embodies the physical forces and histories around us. In turn, disease and public health have much wider definitions than we often believe. Since studying Buddhism, anthropology, and philosophy, Dr. Jean Richardson grapples with how societal forces like corruption have major downstream consequences on public health and inequality. Dr. Jean Richardson is an infectious disease physician and critical medical anthropologist in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Richardson, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You work in global health, but you didn't have a straight path from college to the work you're doing now. Um, you took some time off after undergrad and started a master's degree in Eastern philosophy. What made you want to study philosophy and how did you make the decision to pursue a medical degree? Uh, yeah, so it is interesting. I've had a pretty unorthodox route uh, into medicine. Um, I was pre-med as an undergrad, but you know my dad works for big pharma and that's really all I knew of American medicine and it didn't really interest me too much. So um, a, a scholarship I had received for undergrad um, as I was graduating, I basically received a letter that said, oh, we'll continue to support you in any postgraduate endeavor. And I said, wow, I'm going to take this and run. So I moved to South Africa and started a master's in anthropology, um, which I had been developing an interest in. But I, the program there was a bit narrow, I think, at the time for what I wanted to do. Uh, so I ended up transferring to the anthropology program at the University of Sydney in Australia. And about Two months before I moved to Sydney, uh, they emailed me and said, uh, our graduate program in anthropology is folded. So, you know, um, sorry about that. And I said, well, you know, I already got everything set up and I have the money for it. Like, what do you got that's close enough? I said, oh, okay, well, you know, we could transfer you over to the, um, the master's in Asian studies. And then you could take any class in the school that has to do with uh, Asia. And I thought, okay, well, that's great. I could still do, you know, uh, some of the, if I want to do undergraduate anthropology, but I could get into music, philosophy, all these kind of things. And so I moved out there and within the first few courses found that I had this interest in, um, Buddhism, uh, in particular, some of the early philosophical Buddhism. And so while the degree was in Asian studies, I ended up focusing on um, this one particular form of uh, Buddhism in 6th, 7th century China called the Huayan or uh, flower garland um, tradition. And it was a precursor to Zen. And it's basically a very philosophical form where you uh, engage in contemplation to the point where you're able to see the total interconnectedness of the universe. And so, of course, I never got enlightened, but I think I progressed along the lines of really seeing interconnections of things, really seeing how, you know, the Buddhist feels it's a, it's a bit of a, 
a mistake for humans to really identify themselves as individuals without seeing, you know, how much of their existence is kind of interdependent with not only people around them, but uh, processes in society, um, you know, inanimate objects, these type of things. And so with that way of seeing things, I kind of came back to medicine and said, okay, well, um, you know, what can I do to act on this view of interconnectedness? And I guess it's around that time that I read, first read Paul Farmer. And I thought, okay, this guy's got it. He, he's actually employing, you know, a, a Western tradition, but with a view that, um, there is much more to, um, to disease than, you know, the biomedical definitions we come up with. And as we may go into later, uh, an example is is the recent Ebola outbreak. You know, it's not the virus that's causing the suffering in that region. That's really just a marker for historical structural processes. And so when I began to see medicine in that way, which is, um, you know, a biosocial approach to it, I thought, okay, I can go back to med school and, um, and follow in that path. And I really did follow him to the T. Uh, I basically, you know, did, uh, went to med school, um, did a, uh, internal medicine and then a fellowship in infectious disease and a PhD in anthropology. And now I'm lucky enough to work, uh, for partners in health and at HMS where he's our, uh, department chair and, uh, a mentor of mine. And so, um, there was a lot of luck along the way, but also, I mean, th- this is how I circuitously arrived at, uh, at where I'm at here in Boston. So getting to the work you've done about um, Ebola survivors Mm -hmm. in Sierra Leone, I think it was interesting in reading a couple of the papers that you sent um, that you talk about survivors. And I think when we think about survivors of an epidemic, generally we think about people who had the disease and then are cured of the disease. But you have a a wider definition of a survivor. Could Mm -hmm. you talk about who the survivors of epidemics are besides people who get cured of the disease? Sure. Um, and, and that is the focus of a lot of my work. Um, you know, I did the, my PhD in anthropology, but I'm really interested in critical theory. And critical theory is an approach to, um, you know, looking at science, looking at art, looking at all the sorts of things that are presented to the public and trying to understand... Um, how certain things get raised to the level of authority um, uh, and some things don't. And so, for example, you know, the idea of survivor, uh, we talk about that in the sense of an epidemic. Well, you know, we have public health people that uh, have already, you know, um, gone into um, outbreaks before and it's just become common sense that the word survivor of an outbreak means somebody who was infected and then didn't succumb to whatever illness was caused by the, you know, by the virus or whatever the outbreak was. Um, and so a critical theorist would look at that and say, okay, uh, how, you know, how is this that, that, that word came to be common sense and who does it serve to think of that word in that fashion? And I would say that, looking at the word survivor in that fashion um, serves those of us that are in the West in that are in protected affluence, so to speak, because it really 
focuses our mind on the virus as the cause of that person's suffering instead of the virus as a marker of historical relations of inequality that have set up a risk situation where that person is more likely to get a virus. And if you look at it that way, then survivor um, could mean somebody who is actually still alive despite having had their ancestors forcibly removed and enslaved that is still alive even after um, the British colonists extracted much of the wealth from their land, that is still alive even after civil wars that were enabled by Westerners buying blood diamonds and governments selling, uh, Western governments selling arms to the different factions. Um, you start to see survivor in a broader sense and survivor as somebody not necessarily who is still alive, but has um, lived through um, or, or lives in a region where those structural forces are being written on their bodies. And so just redefining survivor in that fashion, um, I don't necessarily want to um, focus on the actual fact of that somebody's still alive regardless. I want to use it as a heuristic or a tool so that people can see, oh, wow, there's a lot more that determines the suffering there. And by focusing on these narrow constructs of, of these people are suffering because they have crazy habits and they, and they do weird funerals and they won't listen to us actually obscures our role. Uh, you know, those of us in protected affluence, uh, the, the part we play in um, and our predecessors have played in structuring and really determining that suffering. And so, um, so a critical theorist essentially looks at the categories of thought we have and tries to look at the ideological work they do. And I would say Survivor in this sense does uh, ideological work because it leaves transnational relations of inequality that are at the root of it un under criticized for survivors of an ebola epidemic what are some of the challenges that they mm -hmm. face i'd say first and foremost it it's um uh, looking at it relationally is the destruction of of a person's family and network so you have people that lose you know, parents, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, you know, the entire thing that makes them them. There's a, a saying in South Africa, um, and I forget how it goes, uh, it's something about Ubuntu and, and Gabantu, and it, mean, it basically into English translates to, you know, I am who I am because of like the we. Um, it's a really relational way of seeing the world. Like I'm not an individual. I am my family, these type of things. And so for the people that have lost that, um, the, the, the suffering is you know, immense. It's not only like who they live for, but also, you know, breadwinners and the people who were, you know, working the farm with them. And so, uh, you know, people have been left with, with nothing. Um, and, uh, in, in the paper we wrote, we kind of traced, uh, or actually it was another paper called, um, symbolic violence and Ebola survivors. 
And we basically trace how words like outbreak contribute to this suffering because, you know, an outbreak is thought of as, all right, there's a, you know, virus or bacteria circulating and there's no more cases, there's no more outbreak. And when there was no more outbreak, all, most of the NGOs packed up and left and most of the funding that we were promised dried up. And we had, you know, some very strong survivors programs. We employed almost all of the people that were discharged, uh, something like 600 people from our Ebola treatment unit. And then we were counting on a lot of this funding to be able to continue that. We were able to show that all these people that we were able to employ, even two years down the road after being employed, um, even if they didn't still have their jobs, were better off than people that got discharged with their bag of rice or, or nothing. Uh, and so part of the, the symbolic violence of outbreak is that uh, the, the eyes of the world turn to the next crisis. So, and they follow the crisis caravan to Zika and to the other places. And so these people, like the, the suffering, even if they have no longer, no longer have suffering from the, the virus itself, which actually does have a lot of sequelae. Um, you know, people had uveitis and cataracts and neurologic manifestations, um, uh, which, uh, survivor clinics were set up for, even if they didn't have biological or biomedicine traced suffering from the virus. There was a huge amount of suffering just from the loss of family, the loss of livelihood and the poor infrastructure to support somebody in that mechanism. You know, if you had gotten Ebola and survived in Denmark, you'd be totally fine. You get Ebola and oh, well, unless you'd lost family members, but at least there's an apparatus there for supporting you. Um, and so, uh, naturally these, uh, people have come together and for, formed a survivor's network to, uh, support each other, to, to clamor for, um, benefits. Um, and this is something that Adriana Petrina has termed biocitizenry. And it basically means that, you know, if you're, if, if you live in a country that, the government provides nothing in the way of resources uh, for for you to live um, uh, a good life, uh, which would be what a you know, which would be citizenry. Then you look to other ways of of getting what a government should provide you. And so her book was about Ukraine and how many more people essentially that, um, you know, there were people affected by Chernobyl, but there's a phenomenon of many more people that weren't affected by it, claiming to be infected, by, uh, affected by it, because that, that was a way of getting welfare, so to speak. Um, and so they were bio-citizens because they had to claim that they had, you know, radiation exposure to get what any government um, should be able to, to provide their citizens. And so the same thing in Sierra Leone and Liberia, these networks have come to um, uh, to have shown up as a form of biocitizenry. And it was striking to me, uh, in Liberia, we've been doing a study where, um, we've been conducting zero surveys, uh, to, you know, find, um, asymptomatically infected, uh, 
individuals to find undocumented survivors, but also some colleagues at Harvard are doing a, a genetic study to see if there are genetic term determinants of why some people get sick and why some people don't get sick. And they went out to one of the rural areas and um, you know, drew blood and conducted the serologies on several hundred people. Several hundred people that all showed ID cards for being a survivor and found that 40% of them actually had no evidence of, um, of having had Ebola in the past. 40%, so you know, almost half is huge. And so what it uh, and so the the scientists there were going back and forth about oh well you know what does it mean to be a true survivor and you know you have to um, you know if they if if they are not showing the antibodies then I mean they were really narrowing the discussion of the phenomenon to you know who had antibodies and who had not and I was thinking to myself well this type of biosocial approach would look at it like this really this phenomenon has very little to do with Ebola it's much more about how the mafia and corrupt government has led to a situation where people would want to be that that weren't ever sick would want to be identified as an Ebola survivor just to scrape some benefits to to live on. Um, that's the phenomenon we're looking at. This is much more of a historical structural phenomenon than one of who is a survivor or not. Hi, Think Research listeners. We're taking this break to let you know that Harvard Catalyst offers online courses and topics including grant writing, mixed methods research, and omics. Right now, we are accepting applications for our Introduction to Mixed Methods Research course. To apply and learn more about all the courses we offer, please visit catalyst.harvard.edu slash online learning. The phrase you used, protected affluence, mm-hmm. is interesting. How what are the ways in which we protect our mm-hmm. affluence so that and that is a great question and it's a difficult one to answer because um you know it's not like social scientists have the answer and so if i if i feel like i'm speaking from a or if i sound like i'm speaking from a self-righteous point of view or a point of view of truth i'll start by saying that i'm a pragmatist and so a pragmatist is really somebody that sees truth as what people agree on. And so right now people agree that survivor, you know, of an outbreak means somebody who had the disease and um and and is now alive. And as a pragmatist, I would say, well, I want us to come to an agreement on survivor means somebody who is still alive despite what has been called the mafa. And the mafa is a Swahili word for the African Holocaust. And it basically means everything that has happened since the enslavement of Africans, including colonialism, structural adjustment, enabled civil war, all these things fall under uh, the mafia. Uh, And so I would look at survivor as somebody who has experienced the mafia and is still alive. And, And can we come to an agreement that that is a better way, that is a more just way of seeing the world. So I don't claim any monopoly on capital T truth, but I do wish to work to, fi- to find agreement on more just ways of categorizing the world. And so back to the question um, about protected affluence. Um, social scientists have tried to parse this in many different ways. You know, there's modernization theory, which basically just holds that the West 
is the paradigm for where everybody needs to get and everybody is just on the road to that. That's pretty much been dispelled. Then there's dependence theory, which basically says that um, we have countries and regions like Europe and North America that have, because they industrialized early, have such an advantage economically that they now use their economic power to continue to extract wealth, to continue to create situations where um, lower income countries aren't able to industrialize. So for a good example, um, in the Ebola regions, Liberia. Liberia is one of the world's largest sources of rubber. They have no tire factory. And you talk to people and they know that. You know, they know that they sell their rubber for cheap, whereas they could be a richer country if they were making the tires there. But protected affluence means we're in a position to prevent tire factories from being built there. There's also another theory called world systems theory, which is, you know, people quarrel over and it basically divides the world into a core and a periphery and a semi-periphery in the middle. And it's essentially the same thing. The core has the economic might and it uses it to continue to extract from the periphery um, and to maintain the periphery as a sort of labor base and uh, resource base. But all of this is pretty simplistic to you know, label one region as this and one region as this because somebody would come back and say, all right, well, you have protected affluence in the US. What about the corrupt elites in West Africa that are also part of this extraction process? And so you could even bring them into the fold of the protected affluence because, um, you know, we've written a paper recently on how mining corporations in Sierra Leone use these elites um, uh, in a form of indirect rule, which is how the colonialists did it, um, to basically um, give little in the way of greasing the pockets of politicians or, or paramount chiefs so that they can absolve themselves from paying, you know, what would be large taxes. Um, and in the paper, we basically conclude that through paying 100000 here and 100000 there and avoiding the several um, hundred million that would have been taxes on the billions that have come out of the ground in the form of diamonds, that the Ebola outbreak probably could have been averted if that money had been used as health infrastructure. But instead, uh, the core, to use the kind of simplistic model, is able to um, maintain a setting where we can get the resources for cheap and the the benefits of actually um, you know, getting equal pay, getting um, paying taxes, those type of things that would build a health infrastructure that would would make most of these epidemics um, you know, not exist in the first place. Um, you know, it, it doesn't come to pass. And so these are the things we try to trace how this outbreak is just a marker for, for upstream political economic determinants. You raise, I mean, a really interesting point that I think people think of these outbreaks as somewhat inevitable. And you, like you said earlier, based on, you know, crazy funeral practice, so-called crazy funeral practices and uh, sort of backwards customs that it's sort of the, the people who get infected, it's, it almost seems like 
they did it. You know, people think, oh, they did it to themselves. They right. didn't listen to our public health campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and you describe a situation where if you know, resources were taxed, like um, generally is in the West and developed economies or industrialized economies, that you, you'd be able to build a public health infrastructure that mm-hmm. would prevent these. So could you speak a little more to like why that, hasn't happened is it just because of the system of control that they want to keep in place and mm-hmm. we sort of turn a blind eye to it or what what leads to that i think it's part of all um and, and this is kind of what the critical theorist theorist does it it's that there is a lot of ideology built into the kind of the aid we give and um the purpose of ideology it really is to obscure the you know, the, the real reasons behind things that are going on. So for example, um, there's, uh, a group that, uh, published, um, a report called honest accounts. I think they've published two now. Um, and they're part of, uh, you know, uh, uh, a set of NGOs like the Jubilee campaign that's working to, um, to, absolve toxic debt and things like that and what they shown in their last one is something about how and i forget the exact numbers uh but it you know something like a hundred billion dollars is invested in uh the continent of africa um per year and uh in the form of aid and investment and things like that but then when you look at the illicit flows, they call them IFFs, illicit, illicit financial flows that come out of Africa uh, in through tax evasion. There's another one that's, um, the uh, I forget what the name for it is, but it's the way they're, they can do their inventory audits and, and you know, change the pricing of things. Um, and then just, um, you know, uh, corruption, these type of things that uh, $200 billion or uh, whatever the exact number is, comes out per year. And so they conclude that development is a farce. Development makes people in protected affluence think that we're doing something for these regions that are behind, that are a little backwards. Really, it if you look at it in this way, it's just a cover for Africa developing us. <laughs> if development means an excess contribution to somewhere so that they can improve their lives, then Africa is developing the West because it is providing much more than it's receiving. So words like development allow uh, countries, allow those in protected affluence to give a little with one hand while they're taking a lot more with the other. And the ideology behind it focuses most people's attention on the hand that's giving. And what we're trying to do is to actually show what the other hand is doing. And then what are the downstream consequences? It's not just the money that's coming out. As that money comes out and you don't have money for health infrastructure, this is what happens. And I think some public health person said, you know, outbreaks are inevitable, but uh, pandemics are optional. And that to me is bourgeois thinking as well, because it means, uh, to me, I take it as something, well, uh, an outbreak in West Africa is is inevitable, but it getting to the West is um, optional because we should be, we have the containment mechanisms to, to stop it from happening. If 
you take that to a more local level, you could say, all right, maybe the initial couple cases in Guinea of Ebola were optional because it was there that the zoonotic jump from potentially a bat took place. But that actually, that 28,000 local outbreak was optional. It could, it, with all these resources over the decades that we're talking about invested in an appropriate health infrastructure, um, you know, it's our opinion that it could have been um, contained at, you know, after those initial cases, say, around 100, just like Nigeria did. Nigeria is corrupt. They're, it's not like they're an example to the world for governance, but um, they do have a strong public health infrastructure. And so it also raises the question about, okay, well, even if we had the health infrastructure to stop it at 100 cases, well, those people were still doing crazy funerals and it still would have spread. And, you know, in that paper you were talking about, we actually... We spoke to a lot of people about this. And while early on, yes, there was a disbelief that it was, um, that Ebola was real. Some people thought that the U.S. was testing out a new bioterror agent. Some people thought that they had made a deal with the government to, um, uh, uh, to release the virus so that Big Pharma could come in and sell whatever they wanted to to, to fix it. Um, you know, those aren't crazy ideas. To me, those are actually sophisticated critiques of, and they're sort of close to what is actually going on. Um, but other people we spoke to said, and, and we say this in the paper, you know, I knew my uh, loved one likely, likely had Ebola, but, you know, an ambulance was three days from coming and they were laying in their own vomit and I can't allow my mother to lay in her own vomit. So I cleaned her. You know, it, it's very easy when you start talking to people on the ground to, to see these structural determinants, uh, you know, manifest. Next time on Think Research. The idea of these biographies also came from Paul Farmer. And he's pioneered a process where just through even a limited number of interviews that go deep, you can help contextualize an environment of suffering. Dr. Gene Richardson returns to discuss his fieldwork studying the implications of historical injustices in Sierra Leone. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. research.